Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. Happy weekend to you. This is Seattle Sports Saturday right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. We're with you for the next two hours. He's Taylor Jacobs. I'm Curtis Rogers. And Taylor, the OC search. We're, we're, we're looking under every table of uh, where's this OC going to come from? No one knows at this point. It feels like it's going dark here soon, but uh, hopefully we find out in the next few days because uh, I think the Seahawks fans starting to get a little restless in this search. Yeah, when they get that syrup in them, they get a little antsy in their pantsy, that's for sure. And they're waiting for that OC, and they, uh, yeah, rightfully so. I think they should uh, have an answer here, like you said, Curtis, within the next few days. But there's so many options still available, a lot of options not available anymore. For some reason, Eric Bieniemy is still on the table as a head coach, which is, again, really confusing to me. We'll get into that later in the show as well. But, yeah, the, the search continues, the quest to find the next OC. I wonder we should come up with a fun name for it. Text in 710710. Come up with a fun name for the for the search, the quest, the adventure, the journey. You know, what is it? What what, what are we on right now? I know. Yeah, Vizyhard Seltzer text line always there for you if you want to join in on in on the conversation this morning. We've got plenty in store for you. We'll get into this Seahawks OC search later on in the show, as well as take a look at some of the offenses in the conference championship rounds that we're going to see tomorrow. The four teams, what do they have that the Seahawks don't? How can the Seahawks get to that level once again? That's coming up in this hour. And then also, I mean, Taylor, one of the great, one of the greatest news stories to hit collegiate fans in this area of the country this week. Uh, Larry Scott, his dismissal as Pac-12 commissioner. I mean, you hate to dance on his grave like that, but man, oh man, this could not have come any sooner. And I feel like you know this has been a fairly positive show in its history and its in its existence. And I think there's one person, far and away, we have ragged on the most, and we have talked the most trash about. I think it's good old Larry Boy here. So, uh, the the news was so it was such a fantastic push notification text message thread uh, to receive from your friends that Larry Scott out. As Pac-12 commissioner, we got a sh- we got a chance now. We, hey, look, that's yeah. all we needed was just the chance, right? There's there's light, and it's been so dark on this side of the country in terms of collegiate athletics over the last decade that maybe there is hope. It, it, but hopefully, there's somebody out there that can dig the conference out of the just massive hole that Larry Scott left it in. Uh, We're going to get into that conversation coming up at 1130 this morning. But before we do all that, let's get into this hour's big three. Number one. Well, we talked about it. The search continues. The journey to the center of the offense is in full flex here in Seattle. And still a lot of moving parts in the NFL. You got to remember, you can't officially sign any playoff coach until they're officially eliminated or have won the whole thing. You can interview them and talk to them in in an online fashion now due to COVID, but no official signings can take place until they're eliminated. So 
Eric Bieniemy still coaching. One of the reasons why he hasn't been signed, but you're seeing a lot of those head coaching vacancies fill up. So really confusing there. But the one here in Seattle, the offensive coordinator position, we've seen some names go, and now we're starting to see some names start to uh, jump onto the list and maybe move up a little higher as well. But a couple of the big ones we talked about last week, Curtis, that were intriguing to us. Mike LaFleur, Mike McDaniel down there in San Francisco, mainly just to get him away from the 49ers. Both appear to be off the board. Then you go to Peterson and Gaze as the head coaches. Most likely going to take a year off. It looks like they want to take some time away from the game. And even in the middle of the week, the late sort of sneaky pick, the QB coach from Kansas City, Mike Kafka. They're all Mikes. Why are they all Mikes? You notice that, Curtis? Something weird. I know. It's bizarre. Anyways, um, he also appears to be off the running as well. It looks like he's going to stay in Kansas City. But a couple of the names moving up. Former Seahawks coach and current running back coach Kirby Smart, Anthony Lynn, and Pep Hamilton. We'll get into it more at 1145. Number two. 11 years. The 11-year-long nightmare is officially over come June when Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott, his reign atop the conference ends, and it could not have come any sooner. Scott leaves the Pac-12 in complete shambles and clearly lagging far behind the other four power conferences, whether it was the officiating, revenue sharing, the exorbitant rent fees for the Pac-12 network studios, or the ongoing debacle with DirecTV. Scott never delivered on what he promised, all while giving himself raise after raise. Now, there there was a, a, a couple of successes here or there. The men's Pac-12 tournament, moving it to Las Vegas, that, that was a great move. Getting 12 teams in the conference, that was a great move. But Larry Scott was a just disaster after all of that. So where do we go from here? There was not a single fan of the 12 universities that was sad to see his time run out. Can the conference dig themselves out of this miles-deep hole he left it in? We discuss further at 11.30. Number three. Well, not often that there's Sounders news that makes headlines here, but even international headlines as local MI product Jordan Morris has decided to take a loan with Swansea, move over to Wales, into the championship there in England, and he will most likely be purchased. It's a, it's a loan deal with an option to buy, and usually what that means in soccer is that those players are going to be purchased unless something goes terribly wrong. And Jordan Morris continues to impress. He continued to impress here, 26-year-old forward. Uh, He joins the Swans. He's already over there, um, and he's taken his physical past that. So in his 2016 debut, helped the Seattle Sounders win their first MLS Cup. In his four active seasons, he's played five seasons, he was hurt one, but in the four active seasons, the Sounders made the MLS Cup in each of those two se- or four seasons, pardon me, winning twice. And he also finishes with 35 goals, 20 assists, finishes as one of the, I mean, we throw legend around a lot, but he's a Sounder great. And when, they, when the fans talk about who they remember in sort of Sounders lore, Local products always, you know, high on those lists. But to see Jordan Morris go on and to succeed elsewhere, it's going to be fun to watch. And it's going to be a little bittersweet not to see him here in Seattle. But 
in the end, you wish the best for him. And I know he's going to do well. So again, that's most likely why we won't see him in Seattle anytime soon. Most likely at the end of his career, I'm hoping for a little swan song and a sounder uniform. Swan song, no pun intended. No pun intended. Oh my gosh. Jeez. He's going to swan Look at me. Look at us. Hey, look at us. Who'd have thought we'd be here? Uh, but yeah, Bobby. Jordan Morris going over across the pond. Uh, that is this hour's big three. You mentioned uh, him going over the pond there, uh, Taylor. That's kind of the ultimate goal for a lot of these guys in the MLS is to get that chance to play in Europe. Uh, as as we know, MLS nowhere near the level of the Premier League or, or the Bundesliga or anything like that. But... Uh, you know, to get that opportunity means that, you know, his career is, is headed in the right direction. Yeah, not only that, Curtis, um, Swansea, I believe, is in second place. They are seven points behind Norwich right now for a chance to be elevated to the Premier League. So for Jordan Morris, he has a chance to go put some impactful minutes up for this organization. Hopefully lead them to the successes of the Premier League. Everyone gets a nice little pay bump, and the competition is the best in the world, right? So to have that opportunity to make that sort of impact, and look, they're still in the hunt. 24 games um, or 24 matches played for Swansea, so they still have a chance to gain some of those points on Norwich and just be down a few. So they're really in the hunt, and Jordan Morris is going to be a big part of them making that push. And it'll be really cool to see him maybe one day against Man United or some of those bigger, you know, a Tottenham, an Arsenal, some of those big clubs in England to see Jordan Morris going head-to-head with some of the bigs. Some honorable mentions, speaking of young talents in this town, how about Julio Rodriguez and Jared Kelnick continuing to rack up the accolades, uh, the preseason accolades. They come in in Baseball America's ranking of the top 100 prospects at number three and number four, respectively. The first time the Mariners have had two top ten prospects since one when they had Ichiro and Ryan Anderson, the little unit. Uh, that's, oh, the that's little how unit. Far, oh, man. Yeah, that's how far back that goes. Uh, but, yeah, shout-out to Julio and Jared Kelnick there coming in, ranked number three and number four. got to wonder if that makes them untouchable just with how – much you know is invested in these guys and then at the college level the huskies seeing their defensive coordinator pete kwiatkowski uh take over the same position at the university of texas uh for as much as the jimmy lake was the mouth and the muscle of that defensive coaching staff i would say pete kwiatkowski was the architect of it all he was the guy that made it go uh jimmy lake was the guy getting all the pieces pete kwiatkowski is the one that that made it work yeah, and look, great hire by Texas, and to get a uh, uh, a guy he's familiar with and Steve Sarkeesian, and to be, you know, it, it's a tough job, and it's there's going to be a lot of pressure on him, a lot of booster pressure on him. But look, if you want to succeed, you got to take op- opportunities like this, right? To go to a school like Texas that's a little down right now, and to hopefully be part of the the rebirth of that football area to be honest with you because it just feels like it's been really quiet in the in that part of the south uh as far as college football goes because we 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 grew up with texas being the vince young powerhouse not really seeing them and usc in the limelight pardon me 
is a little confusing for us college football fans, the traditional college football fans. So uh, hoping that they can get back because, again, that, that'll lift all the other teams in the Big 12 and uh, around the country. Yeah, coming up, we'll get into some Pac-12 talk at 1130. Where did this conference go from here? But up next, we got four really, really good quarterbacks playing tomorrow in the conference championship round. Are they the four best in football? And if so, where does Russell Wilson fit in with that group? We talk that next year on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Where does Russell Wilson fit in with the best quarterbacks in football? Uh, a debate that has been going on for as long as, as Russ has shown it, that he is capable of playing at an MVP kind of level. But then there are also those moments where he kind of leaves you scratching your head, specifically the second half of this last season. So where is Russell Wilson among the game's best quarterbacks? And are the four quarterbacks playing tomorrow tomorrow? the very best that we're going to see in the NFL in 2020. He's Taylor Jacobs. I'm Curtis Rogers. This is Seattle Sports Saturday. And, Taylor, when you look at the games that are going to get played tomorrow, I don't think there's any question that Pat Mahomes is the best quarterback in the game right now. Aaron Rodgers is likely number two. Are Josh Allen and Tom Brady cemented in at that three and four spot, whether it be Brady ahead of Allen or Allen ahead of Brady, or, or does Russ find his way into that that top grouping? Yeah, look, and I think we're talking about postseason, like when you go into the postseason, the respect, right? Because you know, if you're rebuilding a franchise, you you, you couldn't rebuild around Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. It would be illogical, right? You would have to pick. Russell would be maybe even too old to pick if you were to rebuild as far as if you had pick one or two. But to me, Curtis, I think it's a fantastic question because I think these are four of the top five of the QBs and Russell Wilson being that other quarterback in the conversation. And then I think there is a bit of a gap between them and Deshaun Watson simply because of the situation he's in right now. Who knows where he's going to play? The, the poor guy's doing the he's making, you know, chicken salad out of, you know, the little pieces of chicken here. So <laughs> it, it, to me, these are four of the top five quarterbacks in the game right now. And it's nice to see the dichotomy between the two generations. Right. Aaron and Tom being that older generation, Russell and Patrick or pardon me, Josh Allen and, and Patrick Mahomes being that younger generation. And then you have Russell right in the middle, right? He is the bridge gap between the two. He's the Kobe Bryant between the Jordan and the LeBron, right? He is that one who's going to carry the torch between the two. And now it's about maximizing that value, right? And Curtis, I think you would, do you agree about those four quarterbacks being in, in the top five at least? Yes, and when you bring up maximizing value, I think these four teams that are playing tomorrow have done an incredible job of doing that with these quarterbacks. Andy Reid has made his offense, he has taken it to another level with Patrick Mahomes as his quarterback. Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur, I mean, there were question marks last year about how good of a coach is LaFleur really, uh, especially with how good of, of a foundation he inherited in Green Bay when Mike McCarthy was let go. I think LaFleur has really shown his worth this season in just giving Aaron Rodgers 
the keys to the offense, even though they did have some questionable draft picks, I think they have done an incredible job of of play calling and, and making it as easy as possible for that offense. And, and it doesn't help to have a guy like Devontae Adams to throw to, who is maybe the best receiver in the game at, at this point. Uh, Josh Allen, you look at that game against Baltimore last weekend, uh, 37 pass attempts to nine designed runs for their running backs. And they won a playoff game like that. We've always been told to win in January, you have to run the football. Buffalo completely threw that out the window last week. They dominated Baltimore from start to finish in that one. Um, And then Tom Brady and that offense in Tampa Bay. Bruce Arians not afraid to throw the ball at all. Uh, obviously last year you had Jameis Winston turning the ball over so much, but now you've got Brady who is a lot better at at holding on to the football. Um, And then they surrounded Brady with just the top tier of weapons that you could ask for as a quarterback. I mean, these are teams that have emphasized quarterback play, and they are reaping those rewards to a point where you kind of look at what Seattle is doing with their quarterback – Pete Carroll talking about how he wants to get back to a more running style of of football. And it's like, well, wait a minute, Pete. Look at these four examples that are going to be on our TV all day tomorrow. You can do it with an offense that is tailored to your quarterback. Yeah, and you just look look at all the playmakers all around the field, right? You mentioned Devontae Adams. You look at... um, in uh, pardon me, in Kansas City, you have Tyree Kill. He's the home run hitter. Kelsey is that. He's just so consistent in the middle. But Hill would be that home run hitter. Diggs in Buffalo, the home run hitter. You know what I mean? And even in Tampa Bay, it, it usually is Godwin or Brown, but or Evans depends on the day. So they all have that ability to go and, and sort of push that back line of the defense, make them think about those big plays, the explosive plays and the ability to, to take that over at any moment. Right. And in cut number one, Mina Kimes talking about how that's the common thread between these four offenses, that explosive ability. All of these offenses, these four offenses have that potential. They're built differently, I think. I mean, you can see some similarities between them. They all use a fair amount of play action, for example. I feel like we nerds talk about it too much, but you know, they're different. Uh, Some of them are more dependent on the wide receivers. Some, like in Green Bay, use more of the backs, tight ends, and fullbacks. But the one commonality they all have is that they're explosive, which is, of course, something that was lacking in Seattle at the end. And look, they have solid run games. And, and there's a text coming in from the 360 asking, hey, look, don't they all have solid run games? Solid. Yes. Is it the focal point? No. And you look at Kansas City, I think DVOA for rushing, I think they were 31st in the league. So I, solid, yes. But the main point, I, I would disagree. Yeah, and I think – you know, you look at these running games, Clyde Edwards Hilaire in Kansas City. You've got Aaron Jones in Green Bay, who is a, a big piece of that offense. Don't get me wrong, but they can win without Aaron Jones. They can win, Kansas City can win without Clyde Edwards Hilaire. Uh, the Bucks can win without Ronald Jones. And, you know, you look at Buffalo, they've been a running back by committee for the last couple of seasons. Josh Allen was their leading rusher a couple of years ago. Uh, Devin Singletary, he's, uh, you know, a decent running back. Zach Moss is out right now, so he's not Mm going to get much 
action, uh, you know, over the next couple of weeks. So you can't you. It is good to have a good running game, but these teams have also shown that you don't. Their chances of winning don't rest in the running game's hands. Where here in Seattle, I think a big portion of the offense's struggles in the season second half was the fact that their running game just was not what we had come to expect here, especially with a guy like Chris Carson. And you also got Carlos Hyde, two guys who were 1,000-yard rushers a year ago. Um, it, it just kind of sputtered out. Like Mina said, Seattle lacked that big play ability in the in the season's final half, where that's how they made their bread and butter in the season's first half, throwing it to DK, throwing it to Tyler Lockett, getting those 50-, 60-yard chunk plays. Uh, DK, I think – you know, after the Philadelphia game, he had well over a thousand yards and was leading the league in receiving. I think he ended up finishing about fifth or sixth in the league in receiving. So he clearly was not on that pace after that game. Um, but yeah, you look at, at at these offenses right now. That quick strike ability with all these quarterbacks, they have it, and they have it in spades. And the Seahawks should have that theoretically. But they didn't, and it cost them big time, it, it, and and to the point where they didn't make even a whisper in the playoffs. Yeah, and it just felt like if you have this emphasis on the run, the run has to set up the pass if you have a quarterback like Russell Wilson, right? And that's also a big factor in those big plays, right? If the safeties are cheating forward because they think it's a run, and they've been running the ball so much, and they're trying to prevent a big run up the middle— that's when you can take the shot over the top, right? And that's when, when they're taking those few steps forward is when you got them, right? And that's when you attack. And to have that that run game be a part of the passing game in a sense that it sets it up is crucial. And there was just some sort of disconnect in Seattle between the two. And it's not a lack of emphasis on either, but they're just for some reason the the pass didn't really set up those big runs like it should have, and the and vice versa, and that's what they need to fix going into next season. We'll get into more conference championship talk later this morning and this afternoon here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Uh, coming up in the noon hour, we're going to take a look at some of the biggest headlines as well in the NFL heading into this conference championship round. But where were you this week when you heard the Larry Scott news that he is no longer going to be the Pac-12's commissioner going forward starting in the month of June? Well, we'll talk about where the conference needs to go from here as we try to dig ourselves out of the mess that Scott left for all of us. That's next year on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Got to be honest, Taylor. Feeling pretty good. And... There, there was one story this week that contributed to a lot of why I'm feeling so good. And I don't think it's going to take many people, uh, many guesses as to why we're feeling so good here on Seattle Sports Saturday. And that is because Larry Scott, longtime commissioner of the Pac-12, somebody who has just taken a stake to the heart of this conference time and time again, well, he is no longer in charge as of June of this year. His contract, uh, they're going to buy out the final year of his deal, and he will no longer be in charge of the Conference of Champions. Taylor, 
I got to imagine you being a Coug, me being a Wildcat, we're talking to Husky and Coug alums and all sorts of other people, Ducks, Beavers, Trojans, all sorts of, of Pac-12 people in this community of ours here in Seattle. I don't think there was a single person said to see him go. That is somebody who Pac-12 fans have united over in their hatred, and now that he's gone... It is just such a relief. It's it's back to business as normal. We can hate each other again in this we fun can. way. We had we had to unite. This was the end game. You know what I mean? He was Thanos. We had to come together, some of us from different movies, different universes, to defeat this guy. Some of us even rivals and vil and and you know and hated counterparts. And now we're we we united. We did it. We pulled off the snap. He's gone. He's disintegrated. But now we got to move forward, right? We got to pick up the pieces of, of what what happened and what this did to us because it pushed everyone back. Not just the little schools, but the USC's and the Oregon's and the U Dubs, the the real name staples of of the conference got pushed back because of of Larry Scott and his sort of handcuffs he put on this conference. So to me, you, I don't even know where you start besides just being so joyous that this is over. Now it's like, what's step one? Where would Curtis, if you were going to be hired as commissioner and you were in one of the, the candidates that we'll get into in a bit here, but wh- wh- where would you go first? I think the very first move would have to be in the next TV deal, figure something out that gets the games at a more visible time slot than 7 p.m., 8 p.m. on the West Coast, where East Coast viewers are having to stay up till 10, 11 at night just to watch the kickoff of games or the tip-off of games. And with that TV deal, also get it on... A streaming service, whether it be Apple TV or Amazon, something like that. Those two companies are on the West Coast. They are within your backyard. They're within your footprint. Do something about that. And then also get it on DirecTV, the second biggest cable carrier in the country. The Pac-12 network right now, or at least the skeleton of what remains of the Pac-12 network, after Larry Scott gutted that entire operation and then, oh, by the way, gave himself a raise after all of that because that's what you do when you lay off a ton of people like that. You have to get the Pac-12 network into people's homes. And whether that means selling it off, selling it to ESPN or to Fox Sports or something like that, you, you've got to humble yourself in that way. The Pac-12 has to figure out the TV deal, I think, first and foremost, because they're two revenue sports, men's basketball and football. Those are the ones that are severely lagging, and those are the two sports that fund the majority of these athletic departments. The fact that you can't get these teams competitive or visible to the majority of the country, that's an, that's an indictment on your conference and that is what I would say is priority number one. What would your priority be if you were in charge of the Pac-12? It, it's got to be getting that money into football. And I hate to say it, but at the top, it all starts with football. And you got to get the, the money to the schools so they can recruit, 
So they can be more competitive in some of those aspects and, and go out and make sure that these teams are competitive in that way because you're right. The TV deal, the exposure, at some point, it has to be cool to play for a Pac-12 school like it was in the early 2000s. It was cool to go to USC or Oregon. That was where it was. That's That was where it was happening, right? It, it, when you looked on the TV, on ESPN, or on the growing internet at the time, everything you saw were everything you saw online or on TV was highlighting this idea. And look at the markets. L.A., Seattle, Denver, you know what I mean? You have the whole, basically the whole state of Arizona, Portland, and the Oregon as well there. So... The markets are there. The money is there. Just invest that. you got to start at the top. Unfortunately, that's the way it works in the NCAA. It is a trickle down where the football head leads the rest of the body. So make sure that fo- the football programs are nationally relevant again. Yeah, and then also you've got to move the headquarters away from San Francisco. That is a complete money pit. They're spending, I think, what, $7 million annually in just rent for wherever the the Pac-12 is headquartered in downtown San Francisco. And we've heard it from a lot of people. We had uh, Bruce Feldman on this week with Jake and Stacey, also John Canzano, the Oregonian. Uh, I think Mike Varell, the Seattle Times, he was on too this week, just all talking about this. And there are other areas on the West Coast where you can put this this headquarters at. San Francisco has never been a a diehard college market. Yeah, they have Cal and Stanford in in their backyard, but that has never been a place where where stadiums have sold out, where there's a, a fever around those teams the way it is in Eugene or the way it is in Pullman or Corvallis or. Or here in Seattle with the Huskies, it just it has never resonated with people down there that way. And to think that that's where your headquarters should have been when you have L.A. and you have more affordable areas too, like Las Vegas or Phoenix or something like that, it just never made sense to me why they would want to waste so much money being in San Francisco the way they were. You've got to figure out a way to, to move the headquarters to a much more – reasonable area as well as an area you can take advantage of. If you want to put it in LA, do that because there are tons of TV executives down there. ESPN has a facility, you know, they've got headquarters down there. Fox is based in LA. Uh, I mean, that's where you want to be. If you want to grow this network to anything more than what it is right now. Uh, I mean, shout out to the university presidents for coming to this conclusion that, you know, we can't continue to go on any further uh, because if they had if they had agreed to let Larry Scott negotiate a contract extension, Taylor, I don't know if I could have continued to to root for the Pac-12 in the way that we have over you know the course of our lives. Yeah, and I mean, look, Paul Moyer, Arizona State grad, you know, he had a big uh, role on his football team when he went to school there. He talks about all the time how he just feels disconnected from the Pac-12 in this conference, and that's a former player. And, and look, you know, there's tons of former Pac-12 players around this area. We're so lucky that that's part of the sports culture here. And ask any of them ab- about what Larry Scott would have done, continued to do, had he been in charge. And the only answer would have been lead them down a path of destruction, 
we see it in in the rearview mirror now and we're looking back and we got to start picking up some of these pieces as a conference now and get back to being one of the power four not the power five the power four right and being in that true yeah. conversation of one of the biggest conferences in the country in all things do you think that there was one singular thing that stood out among the rest of them that led the group of 12 university presidents to say, Larry, hand in your, your papers or hand in whatever it is that you, you have that allows you to continue to drive this conference into the ground. Do, do you think there was any one specific moment or, or was it just a, 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 just a waterfall of, of everything coming together at once? Yeah, I just think it was the eventuality of he hasn't delivered anything that was promised or anything that would make us think this is turning for the better, that there's hope, that any of those things are possible. So, and and, um, it's been well documented now that it wasn't just a couple schools. (laughs) Everyone wanted him out. And I think it was the collective hive mind of look we can't do this we can't survive especially this past season right or the seasons we've seen in in college sports that there could be things that challenge us outside of sports and in the real world and how we react to that is is a showcase on how they react to everything right and the fact that they didn't they were so it felt like far behind the other conferences in a plan and they wanted to be safe, but they didn't have any sort of plan on keeping them safe. And the number of games that were canceled and the shocking nature of people getting to their destinations and having the game canceled when they get there. So it just felt like it was the collective. It was finally that one piece of hay that broke the camel's back because the collection of hay was too vast and it was too much. And there's still a lot of work to be done. And it's going to take a lot of effort from whoever it may be next, whether it's Oliver Luck or, you know, uh, Ohio State AD Gene Smith. You know, those are a couple of names they're floating out there. And we'll see. I don't know. It's going to take a lot. And we, it just has to start soon. Or else, again, it's going to continue to be trouble for the Pac-12. Absolutely. And whoever it is that takes over, you got to be thankful for Larry Scott because – Boy, you, every anything you do is an improvement over what was left for you. The shoes to like fill the, are baby Jordans. Yes. You you just have to do the bare minimum and we will sing your praises. Like that's just yep. what it is in the back twelve right now. So hopefully whoever it is that, that is out there that is gunning for this job, just know that people are going to be excited for whatever kind of ideas you have. Oh man, I anybody anybody is an improvement over what the conference has gone through over the last decade. Coming up in the next hour, we'll give you a big three looking at the national scene. We got NFL playoffs, also some baseball news as well. But coming up next, getting back to the Seahawks offensive coordinator conversation. We want to know why are so few offensive coaches here in Seattle gone on to future success? That's next here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. 
Make sure you're hitting that subscribe button on the Seattle Sports Saturday podcast. 710sports.com on demand. We're also available Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Don't be afraid to hit subscribe. I'm Curtis Rogers. He's Taylor Jacobs. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to take you around the NFL, look at some of the biggest headlines heading into the conference championship round. This time uh, Monday, we're going to know who the Super Bowl teams are. That I mean, crazy, crazy season. Uh, one unlike any other. And then also we're going to take a look at what the Seahawks can learn from some of these conference championship teams that's coming up in the 12 o'clock hour. But, Taylor, Seattle's offensive coaches and that side of the ball, this week I, I noticed a trend that was a little concerning. And it's probably concerning for anybody who is out there trying to land this offensive coordinator job, maybe somebody who is interested in in coming to Seattle. And why wouldn't you? I mean, this team has been a model of consistency in the NFC over the last decade, double-digit win season after double-digit win season, a Super Bowl title in there. But looking at the offensive staffs that Pete Carroll has had uh, during his tenure in Seattle – the alarming trend I noticed is that most offensive coaches here get fired and don't go on to much else. And that's that's not good. That's not good at all. Especially for somebody, you know, who is kind of a whiz kid and wants to come to Seattle to boost that resume. You know, let's let's run through it here. Jeremy Bates, Pete Carroll's original offensive coordinator, he he got fired. Daryl Bevel fired. Brian Schottenheimer fired. Tom Cable fired as offensive line coach. Tater Smith, uh, quarterback coach, he got fired. Sherman Smith, running back coach, he got fired. I mean, does this speak to Seattle maybe emphasizing defense too much in their program, or is this something that? Is just merely a coincidence. I, uh, to me, it feels like a coincidence because when you look at that list, and I was just sort of doing a quick search, but was Jeremy Bates the youngest of all of those who were to get fired in there? I mean, I think so. you know Sherman Smith's in his sixties. Tater is, God bless him, he's old, but like. Tom Cable's old. Schottenheimer comes from that old school mentality. His dad, Marty, you know, that that type of thinking that none of these have been those young, new, energetic sort of flyer hires, if that makes sense. It's all been this sort of weird, I don't want to call them retreads because that's not right, but just old school thinking. Right. And it's a lot of these old school minds and these old school ways. And to me, I think this is the moment. I think this is a great list, Curtis. You brought it's a fantastic point, right? What what's going on here? I, I just think they've had so many of those coaches who they're not like young and exciting. So that's why they don't get hired again. But what they do here definitely isn't helping them get that next job either, right? No. And Bevel is what um, the Jags just uh, agreed to a deal. Just got hired. Yeah. Just got hired by Jacksonville. And even then it's probably, they're probably wondering about that hire as well. And if he should be the guy to take over 
the potential number one pick quarterback, right? And to have the keys to that. So to me, I think it's more coincidence, unfortunately, in this because of the age and the the mentality of some of these coaches. But let's not forget, you are right. There is a grain of salt and truth in the fact that they're not getting those exciting next jobs either when they leave here. Yeah, because Tom Cable, he was fired and then got hired by the Raiders as their offensive line coach. Bevel took a year off, I believe, before Detroit hired him as their OC. Uh, and then now he's off to Jacksonville to join Urban Meyer's staff uh, as their OC as well. But, yeah, Jeremy Bates, I don't think he ever became anything more than what he was here in Seattle. Shoddy, we don't know what his next move is going to be. Uh Tater Smith and Sherman Smith, those two guys have been out of the NFL ever since they were let go. And then you look on the defensive side of the ball, it's kind of been the opposite story where guys who come through Seattle's defensive system and as coaches tend to get those bigger jobs. Dan Quinn, Gus Bradley being the two biggest uh, beneficiaries of Seattle's defense, but also uh, you look at Ken Norton his first time around. He got the Raiders defensive coordinator job after he was just a linebackers coach here. Um, so, And, and uh, I think Clint Hurt right now, the defensive line coach, he is uh, – well, he's not going to get the Oregon job because they just hired uh, Tim DeRider to be their defensive coordinator, but he was in the running for that D.C. job. So, I mean, there's just – on the defensive side of the ball, it has not been the same as what it is on the offense where guys have gone on to bigger and better things. And I wonder, Taylor, do these outcomes on the offensive side with, with these coaches, do you think that will impact the desirability of the offensive coordinator job with any of these candidates? Because we've seen a few guys kind of take their names out of the running, Doug Peterson to be uh, Doug Peterson, the biggest example of that. Do you think that might impact, you know, as we get further along here in the search, guys who are interested in the job? I, if if it was me, again, I can, I can only speak for me here. I would be thrilled about be, potentially being this coordinator and having this opportunity. And you look around the NFL, right, Curtis? And I think a, a good barometer is what teams are interested in Deshaun Watson and the list is shorter on who's not interested. I'd probably say Green Bay is not interested. Tampa Bay might be, but even so, it looks like Tom Brady can still play, so they might not be interested. The Bills, the Chiefs, and the Seahawks, right? And four of the five are the playoff teams still left in it, and the other one is us. So for me to have a Russell Wilson, a quarterback you can trust, and you can trust if your headset goes out, he can still get the play calls in and and be a success. You have a coach who wants to get the run game going. You have receivers like DK and Tyler. You have a billion tight ends. So if you're an offensive coordinator, it feels like this is an exciting place. You have a lot of the tools that you could want in the NFL to go and, and make an impact. What I don't know what else you could be looking for that you wouldn't get here in Seattle. Yeah, uh, Jeremy Fowler of ESPN, uh, who does a great job covering the league, he joined Jake and Stacy this week and talked about the kind of coordinator that Pete Carroll is looking for with Russell Wilson. I do know that he wants to give Russell Wilson sort of a fresh start, you know, some new options, kind of maybe not totally rebuild the offense, but remodel some things. And so that would require 
maybe not a new system overhaul, but somebody who can definitely enhance what they do. So it kind of sounds like they want somebody that has similarities to what Pete wants to do, but maybe wants to marry those concepts of play action and taking shots, maybe do it a little better than what Pete has, has sort of done over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, what is what does a fresh start look like with Russell Wilson? I mean, I would hope it, it looks like him taking more of those shots that we see these other teams take, because, I got to be honest, Taylor. When when the Seahawks were putting up those points the way they were at the in the season's first half, that was a fun brand of football to watch. That was aesthetically pleasing, and that was just a, a blast to see happen here in Seattle. And but then the turnovers started piling up, and then I think Pete got gun shy, which then made Russ gun shy. I would love to see a coordinator come in here and and just instill so much confidence in both Pete and Russ that, hey, even if the turnovers start to happen, that doesn't mean we should completely clamp down and, and, and put the brakes on this. No, and they have the pieces to survive and to withstand some of those mistakes, right? They have a quarterback who has such short-term memory and can go out there, make a mistake, come back, and throw a 60-yard bomb on the next play, right? Like, Russell won't be held down by his own mistakes. And you have a physical monster in DK. You have a slot guy who's quick and fast and can take the top off in Tyler. You have some of those young pieces behind them, too. Offensive line, you know, they they struggled a little bit towards the end, and that's a question I think this team will look at going into the offseason is how do they protect Russell Wilson and give him time back there? Because I think, like Jeremy Fowler said, it's just a little bit of these fresh starts, a little tweak here and there. They don't need the overhaul. 12 wins. 12-win teams don't completely overhaul their team like some Seahawks fans want, and that's something to hold on to. Going forward is there are a couple of tweaks away from being 13, 14 wins. And you're a one seed. You're hosting all the games. You got 12s back in the stands, you know, for the next season. And that's all you can ask for heading into the playoffs. And you play the game. And that's all you can all you can do. Coming up next, we get you the 12 o'clock hours. Big three from a national perspective. Plenty of playoff action coming your way this weekend. This is Seattle Sports Saturday.